The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. What does it mean to live a good life and how can we do that? We'll explore those questions on this episode as we talk with two Notre Dame philosophy professors who've written this fabulous guide for examining the quality and meaning of one's own life. Our guests are Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, whose new book is called The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Tell us how and why you decided to write the book. Yeah, so the book is actually based on a course that Megan and I uh, teach here at Notre Dame, uh, and we've been teaching it for about seven years. Uh, and when we started teaching it, you know, the idea was we think philosophy is relevant for everybody. Uh, but I think a lot of times, uh, you know, just for, for whatever reason, uh, it, it's seen as sort of an academic discipline. It's abstract. It's not really relatable. Uh, and so, you know, we designed a course here at Notre Dame uh, based on that conviction, based on the thought that, you know, if you think really hard about big questions, like, you know, whether whether it makes sense to have uh, faith as part of your life, whether you think God exists, whether, uh, you know, you think uh, you should spend all of your, your time and effort uh, in a life that's action-packed and busy, or, you know, all of these sort of big philosophical questions that, you know, from the time of Plato and Aristotle up through the present, philosophers have been thinking about and worrying about, uh, you know, if you want to take those and uh, use those as a way of, of interrogating and uh, asking questions about how you can structure your own life uh, so that, you know, you can lead a happy, meaningful life. Um, and so that's what we've done, you know, with our students for uh, for many years here. And just based on the response, uh, we thought, you know, this is this is a, a sort of message that, that we think a lot of people would be interested in hearing. Uh, and as we've written up this book and as we've talked to folks, uh, that's that's what we found. Is it typically a class that students with an already established faith-based take, or is it predominantly young adults who aren't sure of God's role in their life? Yeah, so we offer the class to uh, hundreds and hundreds of Notre Dame freshmen each year. And a lot of Notre Dame students have some familiarity with Catholicism before they get here. I mean, it's Notre Dame's touchdown Jesus. We kind of attract a certain a certain population, but we also have a lot of students from China, uh, a lot of students who are unfamiliar with religion, or frankly, a lot of young people who might have grown up in religious households, but are now thinking it's not for them. When we were designing the course, the big idea that drove it was thinking that we want to teach young people philosophy, not so that they can know a bunch of facts about how people in the medieval period uh, thought about the good life or thought about religion, but instead so that they could feel really confident and well-equipped to ask and answer questions about how religion, morality, happiness is going to fit into their plans for their lives. And we think philosophy is a really important form of therapy and guide as we try to answer those questions. Paul and I start off the class with Aristotle, who's kind of like our mascot. 
<laughs> and Aristotle, when he's teaching his class on happiness in the Lyceum 2,400 years ago, the very second day, the second set of lecture notes, he tells his students, we study these questions not so that we can know facts about philosophy, not so that we can know what virtue is, but so that we can be happy, so that our lives can be improved because we've thought about these things. And that's our pitch to students. You know, I got in big trouble uh, a couple of years ago because I was being interviewed by the Chronicle of Higher Education about our course right when it was getting extraordinarily popular. And uh, I, I said, one of the things that the class can do for some young folks is help them write their atheist coming out essay. It's basically like an essay where they start to explain in kind of clear terms what their questions are about religion and why they're thinking it's not, it might not be part of their life. And that, that got me into trouble, obviously, in a Notre Dame context. But Paul and I think that that's really important, giving people the power to, to start to articulate what really matters to them so that they can have conversations with teachers, with parents, with other adults, eventually with their own children about what those values are and their, their most important reasons are, and hopefully like really come to understand what's worth caring about. And what have you learned about what it means to live a good life? Oh man, uh, so many things. Uh, I think, you know, I'll, I'll just pick a couple of things. Um, you know, from, from Plato and from Socrates, who are, uh, again, really major figures uh, in the stories that we tell in this book, uh, we learned that, you know, it's really important to value the truth, to care about the truth, and that this isn't just sort of an abstract intellectual thing, right? Uh, that you really got to come to love the truth uh, if it's going to play the role in your life that it should. So I'll give you an example of, of how this works out, you know, in, in my own context. Uh, my mom was raised Irish Catholic and loves to argue. Like this is her love language, just like sitting around the dinner table, like pounding on it and just, you know, just, just fighting about politics or whatever it might be. Uh, and at some point, you know, we realized in our relationship uh, that there was something more important than being right, right? Than, than winning the debate or winning the argument. Uh, and that there's a certain joy and there's a certain pleasure in, in investigating a question together, right? And, and seeing that, hey, look, we're both going to be better off if we find the truth, even if that means that I'm wrong or that she's wrong or that we're both wrong, right? Uh, now, Socrates, you know, took this idea so seriously, he would walk around Athens uh, just asking questions, right? And sometimes they were kind of politically inconvenient questions. He actually got uh, put on trial for, for they, they called it corrupting the youth. He was asking all these questions. These young people would follow him around and they'd start asking questions. And, you know, they started saying like, I don't know if the myths are true about the gods or, you know, what is justice? Do we really know? Uh, and so he got put on trial and, and they actually told him, look, you've got two choices. You can stop asking questions or you can die, right? And I think in that circumstance, like, I don't know, I, I hesitate to even think about what I would do in that circumstance. But he said, look, a, a, a life where I'm not asking questions, where I'm not pursuing the truth, it's not worth living, right? He said the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, it's a really extreme example, but it's an example where, you know, doing some philosophical reasoning, doing some questioning, thinking about your experience can reveal to you that there are certain things in life that you would never give up no matter what. He actually, I mean, it's kind of dark, it's tragic. He dies, right? He dies for the truth uh, uh, in this abstract way. So um, so that's just maybe one example of, of how a philosopher from history uh, can just show us both through argument, through the ideas that, that he had, but also through their life story, uh, what it's really important to care about in life. 
The major philosophers like Plato or Aristotle obviously lived in very different times than we do today, and I'm guessing it took a whole lot less for them to be happy than it does for us. So I'm wondering if you think that if they lived today, their definition of the good life would be different and that it would include having the latest cell phone and, you know, just <laughs> going out and having these crazy, fancy, expensive trips, or if the fundamental elements have not really changed. I think one of the best things about uh, starting to learn about philosophy is realizing that these happiness challenges that feel just so hard in the moment and so unique in the moment for us have actually been shared by other thoughtful human beings for the last 2,400 years. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I think I'm like a lot of folks, the last two years, all of my vacations keep getting messed up by COVID. And I get stressed out at work and stressed out about the news. And I think, oh my gosh, if only I could just like go to Hawaii, I would finally be happy and able to relax and enjoy my life. But I'm unique among all people in history of really needing to relax and not being able to physically go to a relaxation place. And that can feel really frustrating and uh, you can start to feel kind of resentful. During the pandemic, Paul and I were reading a lot of Stoic philosophers, the ancient Roman virtue ethicists, and there's a great passage in Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is his notebook dealing with uh, dealing with the wars in Rome at the time, and he was the emperor, and he's like, I just keep wishing that I could take a retreat, that I could go to the mountains or go by the sea and finally get away from all of this stress and anxiety. But then I remind myself that the greatest like source of peace that I can find is within myself, like finding, finding things to reflect on and value that I might already have no matter where I am. And he says, once I kind of learn this and, and cause myself to think more seriously about it, I realize I don't have to be able to physically leave in order to enjoy my life. And I just remember reading that passage being like, one, Marcus totally knows how I feel right now. That's just like, I have to get out of this situation. But also, uh, he's famous and has been for uh, for centuries because he has a hack, an advice, a piece of advice that's informed by his vision of what happiness really is, that is available to me even when I'm stuck at home during a pandemic. How important is love and contemplation in terms of living this good life, and how can we build up our ability to love and contemplate? I think, I mean, absolutely essential is, is you know, how I would answer uh, this question. And I think one of the, the really cool things um, about some of the thinkers that, that we consider very much sort of on the, the virtue ethics team that, that, that we see ourselves as, as on uh, is that they give us really new and exciting ways of thinking about these concepts, right? So uh, Aristotle talks about contemplation, not as you know, just studying or sitting down and, and reading really abstract texts and understanding them, but as this fundamental, almost mindful or intentional um, connection with reality. And, and, you know, it's something that's difficult to do, uh, but it's something that once you do it, it's, it's incredibly rewarding, right? So I, I think about this in my own life in connection with uh, poetry and hiking. Uh, you know, when I read a, a great poem or when I read a great novel, and I come to see something about human nature or about the world around me or natural beauty or whatever it is, I just feel this sort of, you know, sense of connection. Like I'm connected to something bigger or greater than myself. This is the same, you know, feeling that I get when I, when I go hiking and I kind of come around a bend and see this beautiful sort of landscape. Aristotle thinks 
that is crucial. He thinks that's essential. It's not just a good thing that we can do, but it's something that is humans. Like we've got to build into our lives or we're not going to be happy. Now you shouldn't just take his word for it. Uh, he gives arguments, right? And then, you know, even in addition to the arguments, you should reflect on your experience and say, okay, is this resonating? Is, is this true? Um, but if it is, that's incredibly important because if we, if we don't build that in, uh, we're really going to be missing out on, on a key ingredient of the good life. I think the other thing you bring up too, love, I'll just say really briefly and, and maybe pitch it over to Megan if she's got more thoughts on this because uh, she's been thinking a lot about uh, love in this context and, and in others. But uh, Iris Murdoch is a philosopher that we talk about in the book. And she says, look, love, you know, is, is often thought of as something that's very active, right? I love somebody if I give them presents or if I, you know, provide a, a, a sort of a, a home for my children. I'm, I'm showing them that I love them. I'm doing all these things. And that's important. It's obviously important uh, to, to sort of do things to show people that you love them. But it's also uh, a contemplative sort of thing, right? To really love somebody, you've got to know what's going on in their inner life. You've got to sort of see the world from their perspective, at least to some extent, and, and empathize and care about that inner life and uh, connect with them sort of on that almost more intellectual level. Um, so having those insights and having those, you know, sort of frameworks and concepts that these philosophers give us, you know, for me, it's just like lightning. I, I sort of get one of those sort of concepts and I just think like, gosh, I can totally see in my life uh, uh, how that plays out. Uh, and oftentimes I think like that just that resonates like that's just true. One of the things we argue and show in the book is that by just knowing a little bit about philosophers like Iris Murdoch in the last century or Marcus Aurelius in ancient Rome, these great like champions of contemplation, they can give us some really practical advice about how to get better at loving people in our lives. Uh, Murdoch has this uh, really beautiful example that she uses about trying to come to love a daughter-in-law or maybe a new member of your family, or maybe you just think of somebody in your family you resent now, like Jan and Laura, I don't know if any of you guys are in this camp, but there's always one family <laughs> member that's driving me a little bit crazy. And I might outwardly treat them really kindly and well, but in my head and my heart just think like, oh, I cannot believe I have to spend Christmas with her again. And Murdoch says, it's not enough and it's not gonna help you achieve happiness to just work on how you're behaving towards other people. Another area where we can actually improve by asking the right kinds of questions, by thoughtfulness, by practice, is, is directly how we see other people. Like we can force ourselves, she calls it looking again. We can force ourselves to look at people that we resent or people that we're not, we're finding it very hard to love and keep trying to, to find like the truth or the goodness in their uh, in their lives. And over time, we can make progress by learning how to tell the right kinds of stories in our own minds about people that are in our lives. Marcus Aurelius, you think like, you know, big, tough Roman general is probably like killing people all the time and conquering his enemies. He, uh, in his notebook about his philosophical journey, he spends the entire first chapter just going through all the people in his life that he's loved and loves and what he admires about them and what he wants to remember and think about them. And he never, he probably doesn't even share this with some of the people. He just keeps it in his heart and his mind so that he, he's able to look at them in the right way, which is part of his good life. Something that really surprised me when I first heard about the book, I thought, well, how are they going to deal with tragedy and death? And, you know, that can't be part of the good life plane. But you guys say that it is. So so what is the role of all those bad events in life that we 
really don't want to think about. Like, how can we make sense of a meaningless tragedy like, you know, a school shooting or the death of somebody, a loved one? I'll I'll start off here. Uh, I think a lot of us get good life advice right now from positive psychology. So trying to think of little like hacks or apps or experiments that will cause us to kind of feel better day to day or feel better about our work. And that can be really important. But one of the things that has really been a driver for Paul and I, both in our course and in writing this book, is acknowledging that a lot of people face happiness problems that aren't as simple as trying to decide whether to just quit this job or trying to decide to change relationships. They're really big existential challenges, uh, and they happen in all of our lives. Somebody you really love dies. Uh, You don't get the chance to decide to quit your job, but you lose your job and you're not able to find a new one. Uh, You're a victim of like abuse or divorce or some some of these really kind of uh, very serious and permanent life changes that can be traumatic for people who go through them. There's a temptation to think that you know, well, one, an app is not going to really help you with those really with those big challenges. Or you should have questions about like simple answers to those kinds of challenges. But they're also very real challenges. And one of the things philosophy has uh, has always been in the business of taking seriously, at least again for the last twenty four hundred years, is the idea that humans want to think through these issues. Um, and they want to learn how to deal with the really big questions. And so the entire second half of the book, we start the first half of the book with just giving some philosophical advice about day-to-day things, how to use your money, how to be a better mom or dad, how to be a better worker. But in the second half of the book, we really do turn to these questions about dealing with extraordinary suffering and injustice, acknowledging the fact that you're mortal and someday you'll die, dealing with the fact that some of these really important questions just don't seem to have answers, no matter how hard you look or how hard other people in history have looked. And we think like handling the day-to-day philosophy eventually pushes you to these big existential questions. And we also think that uh, you don't, you're not on your own with handling those questions. Like there actually is a great deal of help you get from knowing about Seneca and from Thomas Aquinas and William James as you start to, to deal with these really big challenges, which, uh, which maybe some of the ordinary self-help advice is just not, it's not strong enough to tackle. I know you contend that, um, Paul, did you have something you wanted to jump in and say? Um, I can, I can add, I think, uh, I think, you know, I totally agree with what Megan's saying here that, you know, philosophy gives us a way of, of reflectively approaching, you know, some, some really difficult situations. I guess the thing I have to add is, is just a, a kind of example in my own life. Um, you know, in the book I write about when my, uh, oldest was born, my son, uh, he had a condition that was totally mysterious to us and the, and the doctors and the nurses at the time, there's a, a cyst growing under his tongue. And uh, we had to take him down to Riley Children's Hospital down in Indianapolis. Uh, and it was a really you know, traumatic sort of time. I, I, I was, as a, a Catholic, as a religious person, I was sitting there thinking like, you know, how could God allow this to happen? You know, it was the first time that I came up against, you know, what philosophers call the problem of evil or, or this question of how a good God uh, who's all powerful could allow bad things to happen in the world. It's the first time that I really came across that, not as an abstract sort of theoretical problem, but as a practical sort of thing to navigate in my life. Uh, and what I found was, you know, 
doing some philosophy uh, in that moment. I mean, not, you know, taking out a philosophy intro book and like reading through it, but really grappling with some of the issues that, that Kierkegaard uh, uh, brings up or that the wisdom literature, I, I read uh, some Ecclesiastes from the Bible, which is so funny because you, you know, you look at Ecclesiastes, you think this is in the Bible, it's going to be like, oh, you know, happiness and joy, God is everywhere. It's this book that starts out, you know, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, you know, everything's meaningless under the sun. And I just looked at that, I was stunned by it. Uh, but, but, you know, what this experience showed me and, and kind of reflecting on it and going through it, what it showed me is that, you know, I had certain expectations about what I would value about being a parent, what I would love about my children, why it's good to have kids. And some of those expectations were totally upended. I mean, a lot of them were true, but some of them were totally upended. So, so, you know, going through this scenario and, you know, uh, I'm very grateful. My, my son came through this totally healthy. He's five years old right now, uh, you know, probably running around the house, terrorizing his sisters. Uh, but going through this, one thing I realized is, uh, you know, I was just so grateful for the chance to have encountered him, right? I, I kind of reached this moment where I thought, um, you know, I, I don't know what the future holds. And yet my love for my son doesn't depend on that, right? Not knowing a week, a month, a year, 10 years out, what our lives are going to look like. It doesn't change that in this moment, you know, the thing that I love, the thing that I value about our relationship is here. It's present. And it's something that, you know, I can appreciate. Um, you know, and, and that insight, again, is something that came through the Stoics. It's something that came through Kierkegaard and something that came through this wisdom literature I was reading. Um, so I think, I think philosophy can be incredibly powerful uh, uh, in, in situations like that. I mean, it certainly has in my own life. I know you two encourage your readers to share their good life visions with those people who are closest to them. I'm wondering why it's important and how you should react if they don't share your view. Oh my gosh, this is the story of my life. <laughs> like one of the worst things to ever happen to Mary and Liam Sullivan was their firstborn daughter becoming a philosopher. And maybe the second worst thing was her becoming a philosopher that's then a published author that writes about them. <laughs> um, I gave my family copies of the book for Christmas and I can already like hear the text and the groans circulating. Um one of the things that um, that Paul and I teach our students about, and we really put our money where our mouth is in the book and in class, is that it's really important that you wrestle with these philosophical questions in the context of your own life. And we didn't make that up. That's Aristotle. It's one thing to say that as a bit of theory and another thing entirely to like show somebody a philosophical puzzle that you're wrestling with. How much money should I give my family? How much money should I give away to charity, especially if my family's in need? And how much should I be caring about how much money I'm making? That might seem kind of like a theoretical question, but for my family, that's a really live, very fraught question right now that gets into uh, a sensitive topic that a lot of folks have a hard time talking about, family finances, but also gets into really big philosophical questions. Like, what do we think we really owe each other? What does it mean to um, care about somebody in your family more or less than a stranger? And these are the kinds of questions to have a really productive long-term discussion about. Philosophy can actually be pretty helpful because you don't have to uh, you don't have to be making it up as you go along. And you might also realize why a topic feels really fraught. I think that's been really helpful for me is starting to try to write down and share with my family how I've been trying to reason through these puzzles, not expecting them to accept all my arguments. But for them to realize how much I think about it and how much I care about it and want to get it right. 
Um, so we try, you know, we really do put our own families and our lives out there on the line in the book and give you lots of examples of how we're trying to reason through these philosophical puzzles. And our students do this every semester. They write these absolutely moving essays about what they're dealing with. And our hope is it gives people a little bit of confidence to go like two or three steps deeper in these conversations than they've been able to do. And, and we live in a time where it's pretty hard to have even superficial conversations about happiness and the good life. That's a shame. That's something that we're very much like missing out on in our relationships and in our goals. So one of the things that Paul and I hope our students learn every semester and that readers will take away is you don't have to accept that. We can, we can actually try a little bit harder and, and philosophy is here to help us. I'll also say, so I'll take the disagreement part of this. Uh, my, my mom and I disagree about everything uh, and we love it. I mean, you know, we, we, we sort of uh, argue and are arguing with each other and debating with each other is, is sort of like, like the way that we connect. It's our love language. Uh, and so, so, you know, we often find ourselves on the opposite side of, of sometimes divisive topics or, or sort of politically sensitive topics. Uh, and one thing that has been really useful for me is you know, taking a cue from, from Plato and Socrates and remembering how important it is to keep the truth and the love of truth at the center of a relationship like that, right? Uh, so remembering that you know, uh, uh, an exchange with my mom is not successful if I come out feeling like, oh, I just like dominated that conversation. I just won that debate. Uh, but instead, you know, it's successful if we both come away thinking, gosh, I just considered things I had not thought about before. Uh, maybe I'm right. Maybe you're right. Uh, who knows where the truth is? Or maybe it is just, you know, a conversation where, you know, we figure out after some investigation, one of us is wrong, right? Uh, but that's okay. Valuing the truth and, and learning to cultivate the kind of skills and, and virtues uh, that allow you to, to love the truth and love the person that you're, uh, you know, disagreeing with more than you love that feeling of like having won a debate or, or having the right view or whatever it might be. Um, that's just an absolutely crucial skill. And it's, it's one that's, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, very difficult, uh, I think, for us in our culture uh, to really hone in on and, and cultivate. At the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So I want to know from both of you guys, what did nobody tell you about what the good life is? Something that you wouldn't have thought of or, or didn't know before you taught God in the good life and wrote this book that you'd like to pass on to our listeners. I can, I can start off. I was reflecting on this after a conversation I had with an Australian friend yesterday who had just read the book. And he was like, one of the things that's really cool about the book is how straightforward it is. Like there are very few GRE level vocabulary words. It's not trying too hard to be super smart brained, <laughs> even though it, it is, you know, trying to introduce you to a pretty heady topic, academic philosophy. Um, nobody told me, and I wish they had when I was a student, uh, that philosophy is not about appearing smart or profound but it really is about trying to ask questions that people really understand and resonate with. Uh, and that was what Socrates' real skill was, was kind of being present and available to the people that he wanted to do philosophy with, rather than trying to have those people think that he was really smart or knowledgeable. Um, and so I really wish, you know, we all, we all care about, um, uh, about how other people view us. And we certainly uh, read and try to get into subjects like philosophy so that people will realize uh, how skilled we are. But the real heart of philosophy is trying to be able to connect and be available to other people using philosophy. And uh, I, I wish that folks had told me that, in fact, some of the very best philosophy is the most accessible. 
Yeah. And I would say, uh, so before teaching this class, uh, I had come across some of the ideas that, that Aristotle talks about, mostly in, in like graduate seminars and, and you know, undergraduate classes. Uh, but I would say in reading through uh, his book, uh, which is based on, uh, like ours, I guess it was based on his class uh, on happiness, right? He was teaching this to students who wanted to learn how to live a good life and how to be happy. Uh, one thing that, that really struck me is, is this distinction that Aristotle makes between this kind of deep and lasting happiness and this feeling of happiness that is really important to living a good life, but that isn't really our ultimate goal, right? So Aristotle says, you know, uh, uh, we often think that the thing that we're always aiming at is this feeling of like, okay, I, I, I've achieved something, I feel good, or, you know, the, the sort of feeling that you associate with what you post on Instagram, right? Uh, I just literally posted a, a picture of my family uh, on Instagram holding the book. And I'm like, oh, that feels like, you know, <laughs> this is it. I can right? totally see that. Yeah. Oh, man, they, they, were, they were very excited. Kids are pretty cute. Uh, but, um, but, but Aristotle says, look, look, uh, we can use philosophy to uncover a deeper kind of happiness. He gives it a fancy name. He calls it eudaimonia, right? He says eudaimonia is the sort of thing that's, it's got the shape of an entire human life, right? And it's got these ingredients, like these deep relationships and friendships with people who are willing to challenge you, who are willing to help you grow skills and virtues and excellences as a human person that it might be really uncomfortable to grow in, right? Uh, and it's it's the sort of thing that in your life you experience if you're able to think seriously about suffering and about uh, pain and about different areas of your life that we you know certainly wouldn't think of as as happy episodes in our lives. Um, so I, I guess nobody told me that happiness was so complicated, uh, and I wish they had. And I'm glad Aristotle did. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I guess that's my nobody told me lesson. And Paul and Megan, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? So embarrassingly on TikTok for me, <laughs> I have a, an at Prof Blaschko, uh TikTok account where I do actually a lot of good life philosophy. Uh, it's been really fun to, to interact with people and um, yeah, just see, see people doing the kind of uh, uh, debating and, and arguing that, that we really love to see our students do. Um, and then just uh, uh, through the book, you know, uh, which is available through our publisher, Penguin Random House. Um, and just, uh, I guess, I, I don't know, I guess I'm okay. on the internet. If you Google Paul Blaschko, if you can figure out the consonants in the last name. And I, uh, do not know what Twitter is. I'm kind of a Twitter skeptic, but I do know what the internet is. Uh, and I have an academic page, megansullivan.org, where you can read more about this book, my previous book on, uh, time and happiness, um, or other writing projects that I've done. Uh, also, if you want to follow our course along at home, godinthegoodlife.nd.edu, or if you just Google God in the Good Life, it's going to come up pretty fast. Hopefully our book will start to beat it. Um, but you can uh, access a lot of the videos and newspaper articles and philosophical passages that we share with our students and use as starting points for our discussion here at Notre Dame. Well, we thank you both so much for joining us. This has really been enlightening and, and just really thought-provoking as well. Thank awesome. you, guys. Thank you. Again, our thanks to Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, whose new book is called The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 